Welcome to the Philosophy Pub, where a group of four friends sit around a table and discuss whatever we want to while drinking some good beer. Um, I'm Soren. And I'm Lewis. Unfortunately, our fourth member is missing today, but we'll get her back in sometime. So the topic that we've decided to discuss today involves healthcare and more around the philosophy of healthcare. Um, but, you know, asking the question, is it a right? And if so, under what circumstances? And if not, you know, why not? So I think the best person to start would be Soren, who has the most opinions on healthcare and healthcare Indeed. issues. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, so having worked in various different healthcare capacities, I volunteered at a hospital in Los Angeles dealing with quite a few homeless people at one point. I volunteered um, at another hospital elsewhere and then. I worked for several years in an emergency room in a hospital as well as getting through my CNA certification level and my nursing student courses. And I got to see quite a few different aspects of our healthcare system. And I think one of the really important issues to address right now, I think one of the most important things people are considering is who should be paying for healthcare. And um, a lot of people think that, you know, socialized medicine is going to make everyone start paying for everyone's healthcare. But the reality is that emergency rooms are obligated to uh, provide care to anyone that comes in their doors. So that money has to come from somewhere, and it's not coming out of the goodness of the hospital's heart, I can tell you that, <laughs> having met some hospital CEOs in my time. Sure. So um, that money's coming from somewhere, and typically it's coming from taxpayers anyway, um, in some, some way or another. So you're already paying for the care. The reality of that is pretty simple. <laughs> the question is whether you would rather pay for cheap preventive care or more expensive emergency care. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. an interesting point. Having been in that emergency situation <laughs> and seen that insane bill from not having health insurance and how much it helped to be under that, uh, not debt forgiveness, but they reduced the bill down to 10% of the original amount. Sure. Um, that helped us immensely because we were not in a place to pay thousands and thousands of dollars. Did you have a, uh, Did you have to write a letter, or how did you uh, negotiate Actually, down? We had to go 10%. to the main office of the hospital, and I had to sit down with some person in that department and explain, you know, why I was eligible for this program. Um, I had to provide some tax information, some income information, to verify that. Know, I was eligible for that program and maybe 15 minutes later she approved us and we got the new bill a little bit later and sure it was immensely helpful even though at that time I was pretty staunchly against socialized medicine and then I saw how helpful it was and had to reconsider my point sure sure well, and even just think about the implications of that. If you walk into a doctor's office, typically you're not in any kind of crisis situation, so you can take the time, present your insurance card, deal with all of that, making an appointment, all of those things. But if you're having some kind of emergency, you don't want the paramedics or the doctor at the ER to say, hang on, you know what, we can't really deal with your heart attack right now until we check if you have insurance, you know, because we need to make sure we're going to get paid. That's got some really concerning implications because we don't want people just dying willy-nilly because they can't afford healthcare. Right. So yeah, then we, true. we get into the, you know, the concept of medical ethics at that point with emergency and urgent care. Um, but I think the main question that, you know, I wanted to address today um, and get all of our opinions on it was, what do all of us think about healthcare being a right? Um, you know, there are some out there that argue that healthcare is a right in all forms. There are some that say, you know, in certain contexts, and others just say no. Um, mostly the no's I've not heard very many reasons from, but it would right. be, um, I think it would be beneficial for us all to discuss that and just, you know, get all of our viewpoints, establish our viewpoints, and you know, have a nice discussion from there. Um, I guess I'll start off. I am in the camp of healthcare is a right in certain contexts, um, you know, especially with emergency procedures or, you know, medically necessary ones, whereas, um, you know, elective surgeries or things of that nature, things that aren't urgent are not 
a right since they are not mm, that's in, interesting in direct harm of your life um as for the reasons of that like i said i came from the camp of no that's not a right uh, no one should ever have to pay for your health care in any circumstance um but going through the situation that i did with an er visit that was pretty frightening um kind of turned it around and then I had to really start considering um, from what viewpoint or, you know I had to reconsider just my my outlook on it period so um, what about you so my big thought on it is that um, it's a really challenging issue to address in the context of our current system so you know, there's a lot of things that people will say are right. Like in in the U.S., you know, people will be real big on the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms, all of that. That does not mean that the government has to give you a gun <laughs> necessarily, you know, but you have the right to acquire one. Um, so is healthcare a right in that it's the right to pursue happiness kind of right? Or is it the right that you have to be given this? That's kind of a big question for me is how do we kind of define that? And then from there, I think we need to reshape the entire system if it's going to be thought of as a right. Because like I said, we have CEOs of hospitals that are run by private organizations that are out to make money. It's a business. And you cannot require a business to provide something that's legally considered a right that needs to be provided through the government. Yeah. So if it is a right, we need to be undergoing a complete shift in our healthcare system to a socialized medicine system if it's not a right then i think we're a little bit more okay although there are still a lot of issues with our healthcare system sure but what about you what do you think i would say well i have a couple thoughts really when thinking about rights obviously we think about the bill of rights uh different amendments um and i'm not 100 percent sure if there is any legal precedent to say that healthcare is a right uh, in a legal sense, uh, so strictly looking at it from an ethical standpoint, um, I look at water, and I think water is an essential human right that no one should have to um, have to die uh, from lack of drinking water. And the interesting thing is there is a market then for bottled water and exotic waters and water filtration systems, and, and people are making money off of this. But it, when it comes down to it, everyone should be guaranteed um, access to water. And I'm, and I'm starting to think about uh, healthcare in a similar way. Uh, obviously, it's hard to make that comparison because they're vastly different systems. But there are government uh, systems in place, city systems that provide water. Uh, you can look at emergency services providing healthcare in a similar way. But yeah, I'm just looking at it from the standpoint that yes, everyone should be receiving adequate healthcare and shouldn't have to die from lack of it. Right. I mean, yeah, when you sit there and consider it from, an, from a legal perspective, yeah, there, you're right, there's not, I've never found any precedent in you know, my legal studies, but with the exception of the fact that emergency rooms are required to provide exactly. care to anyone that walks in the door, regardless anyone, regardless of citizenship or right, they yeah. they don't have to even tell Anything. them their name. They still have to be treated. Yeah, if they're they're bleeding out or broke something, you know. So, but right. yeah, when we get down to the ethics of it, that's when we we might diverge a bit. But I think you're right that yes, the like the water example was really good that. It dep the basics of it are a right, but how it's gone about is you know different. So sure. we've got the button, like you said, bottled water filtration systems. So hospitals are mostly, you know, some of them anyway, are private businesses and you know have a responsibility to their shareholders. Or and so we get into the concept of business ethics, which is not the point of this discussion, but. Um, well, and I think if you look at kind of third world countries, there is some some overlap or developing countries with uh, charitable organizations that do go in and provide access to clean water, various tools for that. There's those Absolutely. little straw things that you can get mm -hmm. for really cheap that help you get clean drinking water. And then 
there are groups that will go in and provide medical care for everything from AIDS to cleft palates and things like that for free. Right. Um, which obviously is not a permanent solution because they just go in and oftentimes will leave. But, care, yeah. but those are the charitable donations of time and resources by individuals and organizations. I don't think that that could be considered, you know, if we talk from a legal standpoint, that couldn't be enforced. Mm. Um, because it is, you know, charity. Right, I mean, you can't make it voluntary. Entirely voluntary. But, you know, if, if we were to think, would a government program to help people afford health care be ethical? Yes. I think that the obvious answer to that would be yes. I mean, whatever sure. whatever standpoint you consider it from, yeah, that could be. I mean, I don't, I can't think of any ethical implication for not providing health care for others. I was trying to think of an exception, actually, <laughs> and uh, do you guys know enough about the rules of law, uh, the rules of warfare, where if an enemy soldier is wounded, do you have to provide them? medical assistance. Are you talking like the Geneva Convention? Or well, yeah, there are rules for proper ethical conducts in war mm-hmm. that America has signed treaties on. Yeah, the Geneva um, Convention. Soren is going to be, Soren is our, uh, our library. pub librarian and she's going to be looking up all of these different references that we need to refer to. But if we go back to classical ethics. Sure, sure, absolutely. Like even if you're talking from a virtue theory, deontology, or utilitarianism, they all no matter what you consider it from an entity of whatever nature, private or public, providing you know access to health care for re- you know reasonable, whether that's uh, the program that I had where it reduced your bill or something like Sweden or Norway has where it's just part of your taxes pay for your health care. Right. Um, so there's a book, I'm not 100% sure if it's referencing the Geneva Convention, but it's entitled Bioethics and Armed Conflict, Moral Dilemmas of Medicine and War by mm-hmm. Michael Gross. And he um, references the idea that you can kill someone <laughs> in war, but you're generally not allowed to let them die of their wounds. Um, so whereas... Saying you must capture them, in our In regular society, it's generally not okay to kill someone, but letting them die is kind of a gray area. It's the opposite in war. Ah, oh, that's right. so interesting. Because, yeah. yeah, here you have no obligation to help. Right, I mean, yeah, man. yeah, you could be bleeding to death right now. I could be a perfect match for your blood type, and I would have no obligation to donate blood. Which is... Then, Legally speaking. Well, ethically, I would have an obligation well, to do that. I don't know what you consider it from. If you consider it from a utilitarian standpoint, then yeah, you have an ethical obligation and moral obligation. Oh, for sure you do. Because, <laughs> Absolutely. But if Almost you, anyone who hears that would just cringe and be like, are you serious? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but bodily autonomy, you know, is kind of a big deal in our nation that we aren't required to do anything we don't want to with our bodies. I mean, that's the reason why you need so many to jump through so many hoops to donate your organs after you die. Uh, are there <laughs> are there exceptions though to that rule in regards to um, if you're the guardian of a child and yeah. you share a blood type, do you have to provide uh, is there body autonomy? I don't even believe in that you do. I don't believe really? you're obligated to know. Wow. They cannot make you undergo any medical procedure and yeah. technically even something as little as having your blood drawn is a medical procedure yeah it's yeah so yeah, that's why it right can be really really point. hard right wow <laughs> and then of course you know we can get into some issues of where that does not seem to come into play with abortion and things like that in our legal system sure but you know and i think that's one of those those issues where there's an obvious distinction between our ethics between any anyone's pretty much ethics that i can think of and what our legal system requires of us because i can't imagine anyone saying no let your kid die it's fine you don't need i mean you need your blood more than they do <laughs> right but as a third party observer you can say that but when it's you you know, you have to give up, a, you know, your kidney's a match for your kid, and yeah. you have to suffer that undue burden, legally speaking. Um, then you get into a whole mess of different theories and yeah, and how you, where you stand and how you view the world. It seems, it seems pretty clear that just approaching it from a legal standpoint is really insufficient mm-hmm. in order to answer this kind of question. Yeah. Um, for sure. I mean, law does its best to uphold society's morals 
and values, but... Just because something's legal doesn't necessarily mean it's the right thing to do in any given situation. (laughs) Legislation does not equate ethics. Correct. Correct. And legislation usually takes a long time to catch up, as we've seen with things like copyright, um, you know, the DMCA and gay marriage, things like that, that it just takes it a little bit of time to catch up and adapt to new technology. Well, and there's so much bureaucracy involved that even Mm -hmm. when something big happens, like the Supreme Court legalizing gay marriage, you have just this snowball effect of everything else that has to change in state laws and and county laws and everything like that. And maybe maybe we should pause and say there's not necessarily one stream of ethical thought and progress. (laughs) There's always different currents and thoughts, especially thinking about gay marriage. For sure. Well, and it's interesting because it kind of ties in with evolution and people always think like evolution we're climbing a ladder we're moving our way up from least complex organisms to most complex organisms people kind of think the same way with ethics like we're progressively getting more and more and more ethical with time and that's not necessarily the case i mean if you look even at the changes that have occurred in iran over the last 40 or 50 years with women's rights yeah they went backwards they went they went backwards for sure and so it's not necessarily forward progression you can definitely go backwards in ethical ethical issues for sure yeah, and then, yeah, like you said, there's not one current. We've got many different thoughts on how you end or view the ends of, of an action and whether you take the individual or the collective rights, and it's a mess. So, I mean, but, at, but back to our original point. That, is it a right? Yeah. yeah, is it a right? But I think we've established that in most theories or schools of thought and theories that Met or an, uh, some form of entity providing means of healthcare is ethical, um, which is a good point to make because I don't think people see that. I don't think people equate or uh, they often equate rather the ethics of an action versus whether it's right or not because ethics do, you know is in that gray area between logical and illogical, right and wrong. Um, so, but back to yeah, is it a right? Um, I think you explained yours pretty well. Um, yeah. Did you have anything else to add? I would say, um, from my background, thinking in terms of virtue ethics, um, and the kind of person that I want to aspire to be, um, I would err on the side of trying to be as compassionate as I can and say, yes, it's probably a human right. Do you have any stipulations about that say for elective surgeries like cosmetic or things like that or do you think those are not rights in and of themselves right so i would definitely draw the distinction between healthcare and surgeries that are cosmetic <laughs> i feel like that is almost not healthcare that's cosmetic surgery exactly. that's where i stand I would as well most definitely say that there's a very big line between the two I mean, yeah, even coming from my um, deontological standpoint, I think, you know, it certainly satisfies Kant's uh, categorical imperative to provide health care because, you know, you sit there and think, would I want to live in a world where everyone's provided access to health care if they need it? And that answer for, I believe, everyone would be yes. Therefore, I think it's a, um, it's moral in that sense so yeah sure. but I definitely place stipulations on health care so well, to speak to kind of follow up on that there's um, a lot of procedures that are considered elective because they are not life or death or they are not urgent right mm-hmm. now that you are choosing to get done and so insurance may or may not choose to cover those things various like things like preventative that. care is that what we're talking um, about or generally it'll be things like having a mole removed that so that it can be tested for oh, cancer, cancer or um like my spinal fusion surgery that I had um, might have been considered elective because there was no pressing emergent problem that mm. I needed to have that surgery right then. Or even some like sports injuries, like the one of the injuries I got, yes, a surgery would help fix the problems, but... But there's no there's, medical necessity for it. I can still walk and still function. And along that line, you have right. other conditions where a surgery is a recognized treatment for it, but it's not life or death. And one big one that comes to mind is transgender people. Yeah, the transition surgeries. 
Because, you know, a lot of psychiatrists will tell you that that's, you know, the transition is a recognized treatment, but is that considered, you know, necessary enough? So where do we draw that line between elective right. procedures and That's where ethics healthcare? comes in. Exactly. Really where ethics comes in. Um, but yeah, and I don't know, do you think deontology is well equipped to answer questions about uh you know, transition surgery or elective. Don't think so. Cosmetic I mean, surgery. Everyone could answer the, you know, that question of what I want to live in a world where blank differently. Mm-hmm. You know, some, you know, maybe more pro- progressive people may just say, yeah. I want to live in a world where everyone is happy. Yeah. And can have. Right. And then some conservative people are like, do you want to live in a world where everyone has gender reassignment surgery or whatever and or they, their take, answer would be a vehement no yeah absolutely or you could take the centrist classic liberal route and just say i don't care it doesn't affect me in you know my ta- or, i'm already paying taxes i'm not really that concerned right or that, that's almost it could be a libertarian view as well it has no bearing on my life so but if we're talking about government-sponsored mm-hmm. healthcare, and then, you know, then it does issues. come in of what do we need to pay for? What's our obligation there? What we there? corporately believe and are willing to pay for. And what That's where it gets really tricky. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. And I don't um, think any of us is that well-equipped to answer that from, you know, we all have our different viewpoints, but it is such a complicated question, and I think you're right. The My personal... Uh, preferred ethical um, viewpoint is, is you know con- uh, deontology and Kantian ethics and that uh, it's not well equipped for this right well and a lot yeah. of Christians will tell you that it seems like to me from the background that I'm coming from a lot of American conservative Christians at least will tell you that healthcare is not a right even though you have a right to life which is their basis for being anti-abortion in many cases Sure. So I'm, I'm kind of wondering. I'd like to talk to someone about how they reconcile those two. That would be fascinating. Things be, because be why fascinating. does a baby, a preborn baby, have a right to life, but not a Medicare? Which patient? is a medical procedure. Birth. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Yeah. And then, um, I think you had something you wanted to bring up too regarding the from the Christian standpoint. If I could just quickly state. And I do think maybe in our, our later discussion we could bring up uh, another field of ethics that I'm not fully comfortable with but is better equipped, I think, to deal with these kind of bigger questions, mm, which is that? utilitarianism. Yeah. That which, is very well equipped. I think, this. yeah, and I think that's honestly the perspective that most of us are coming from with this. Mm-hmm. That, you know, it benefits all of us. To have and causes the least pain, yeah. Well, it depends on, yeah, the, I guess it would be the principle on which you're basing your utilitarianism, whether it's pleasure, pain, or choices, or, or whatever. Um, There's various more schools. Of the, like the hedonistic calculus. Right. Um, but that same calculus applies to whatever principle, whether it's pleasure or yeah. uh, choices. I've actually heard arguments by utilitarians, uh, some people who say a monkey has more rights than. Uh, an unborn child because it has more choices or a child with autism or something like that. It's like, wow. Well, and then, yeah, you get Not into a whole judge, other can of worms. Makes me very uncomfortable, personally. For people with, <laughs> people with disabilities and things like that, what obligation do we have to, care to make sure they get care if they don't want it? And then we also have the, the mess that is mental health, which I think is a topic to save for a different time. Oh, it's a disaster. Yeah, that would be a good one to save. Yeah, I, <laughs> it's a disaster. That'll have to be another. <laughs> Recognize it's, it's yeah. something we're going to talk about, but not tonight. <laughs> but, for sure. Yeah, utilitarianism is a rabbit hole. If you take it to its extremes in a lot of regards, and I think this would be one, but I think Soren had something that she wanted to absolutely she wanted to mention real quick. Yeah, so looking biblically at this for just a moment, we don't want to get too Christian on you guys, but just to kind of bring this up. Um, Matthew 10, 8 through verse 11. This is the ESV for anyone who's concerned about the version. It says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff. 
for the laborer deserves his food. So that's pretty clear to me. That's pretty, pretty stinking blatant to me that it's saying that you are not to hoard things for yourself. Like you're not even supposed to have two articles of clothing if someone else needs one, you know? And so, and yet we're saying like, no, you can't have whatever healthcare treatment because I need my money for, and I mean, let's be real. Most Americans that are voting against universal healthcare are not going to be those that are in in real poverty, in real dire straits. Mm-hmm. Um, True. They're the people with two coats. Two coats, at least. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and who are we to say that, you know what, I don't have enough. You know, I'm sitting here with, you know, a computer, a tablet. I've got plenty. Mm-hmm. And to say, like, oh, that guy doesn't need, he doesn't need his dialysis treatment because that's an elective procedure. Like. Yeah. Even from a logical <laughs> standpoint, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't. It doesn't add up. The benefits to everyone. I mean, and I think sometimes it's just an empathy issue. People who have never been in that position where they've had to struggle to afford an emergency room visit or healthcare or whatever they needed, or they have been on Medicare, haven't been able to get their kid into a pediatrician. We dealt with this a lot and they can't get their kid into a doctor. So they take them to the ER. And yeah, it's a waste of time for the ER because it's just a rash, but they can't go anywhere else. Right. And thinking like a utilitarian, I hate this, but um, (laughs) it's a waste of resources too. It's less efficient, right? It's less efficient. It costs way more to be having those kids in the emergency room for unnecessary emergency room visits than it would cost the government to just pay for them to get in with a pediatrician, get decent preventive care. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and not to mention just helping educate parents and help them be better equipped for what they can do, you know, over the counter. And they just don't know. And a lot of times it's really, really hard because they can't even afford that. Mm -hmm. So they go to the emergency room because they know they can get it paid for through Medicare because they can't afford the rash treatment over the counter. Right. Or whatever it is. And people are going to cast judgment on those people for not taking their kids to the pediatrician, it's like they can't afford it. They can't afford that $30 copay. They can't afford it, and they can't afford whatever medication they're going to get prescribed or the -the over-the-counter, you know? And so people complain a lot about people that abuse the system, but a lot of those people just don't have any choice. Sure. Yeah. I'm trying to think of a criticism. (laughs) (laughs) There's not really a whole lot. I mean, someone could argue that I don't think it's very compassionate that they're living that life because of their choices and that they should have made better choices but I totally think that's I'm very uncomfortable with that line of logic because I mean just speaking from personal experience you know I've worked multiple jobs just to pay bills and it wasn't through choices of my own it was circumstance of and it wasn't enough it wasn't enough to get amen brother pay for your health (laughs) care Amen. I would say another passage that comes to my mind is um, Parable of the Good Samaritan, mm-hmm. which really, uh, it probably has something important to say about healthcare, but it also has something to say about um, empathy and, you know, uh, the rules that we have about body autonomy and how we don't need to offer aid. And yet Jesus is saying, hey, uh, there's this person who's dying and needs your help, you're obligated to assist them. Well, and it doesn't matter what harm it does to you. It doesn't matter if now you're going to be ritually unclean to go into the temple. Ritually it unclean. does not matter. Or slowed in this area anyway. where there's a bunch of thieves and yeah, robbers. Yeah, you do it anyway. But, I mean, if you look at even other religions like Islam, I studied, haven't studied the Quran as much as I have the Bible, but I believe there's something in there about helping the... The widows, the orphans, the oh, yeah. sick. There it's is. all throughout the Old Testament, too. So Yeah. And all the, of the Abrahamic traditions. The Anglican Church, be, yeah, teaches that you are obligated to... And then there's even, like, Eastern religions have it, too. Like, in Buddhism, Absolutely. compassion is a huge focus in most um, schools of Buddhism. Even, like, Zen and, and then talk about... Even Shintoism in early Japan had precepts about helping those around you to the best of your ability. Right. We're not all as equally capable of helping our fellow well, no, man. But, but there's always something you can do, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's going down and donating blood 
you know, which right. which like we talked about is a minimal impact on you and it could save somebody's life. You know, right. there's I mean, there's something you can do that's small. You can volunteer your time, you know, um, even people can crochet little hats for babies in the NICU. Like, that makes a difference because they're not stuck in a little hospital cap that's itchy and, you know, like those tiny, tiny things that you can do, even if it's not money, even if you have no money, chances are good you still have some free time that you can give. You have other resources, yes. Everyone has more resources than we think. Don't dwell on that. Time is one of those that we often take for granted. Absolutely. Um, But even from... Uh, for those of you that are more like me and think of um, things from a cost-benefit scenario, it mm-hmm. yes, there is no monetary compensation. There's not often. There's no compensation. Sometimes you know, if it's a program at work, you might get a coupon to a local business or or something like that. But in the end, that comes down to you know whether you look at this through a utilitarian standpoint or an individualistic right yes there's no benefit to me to donate blood but is it worth it for you know the greater good well and then yeah if you look at most any religions i mean if you think about you know karma or you know in christian teaching you know whatever you did to the least of these you did to me in jesus's words in old norse traditions they had that with you know, a similar concept that anyone could be Odin. Yeah, I mean, even Disney, Beauty and the Beast, he didn't take care of the the ugly old woman, and she was, you know... She cursed him, yeah. (laughs) bitch that she was. (laughs) But pivoting back to kind of what you were talking about, from even just an evolutionary standpoint, um, kind of devoid of, of most ethics, you could make the argument, I believe, that doing a Good Samaritan act will lead humanity as a whole to be more successful. And right, which benefits would all Would allow of us. us in a, a, a tribe or uh, a village setting to thrive better by being compassionate. Right, and even for, if we go even further down than that to just logic, and whether it's logical or illogical, from where I'm sitting, it's logical for me to you know, donate blood or what have you, even though there's no immediate benefit to me, who knows where that blood will go and what that person could later do that might actually Yeah, I mean, you have no me. concept of yeah. the, the good it could do, but it couldn't possibly do... I mean, theoretically, you could, you know, have something go wrong with the blood draw, but it's such a minor procedure. But, you know, you don't, you don't know where the good you do is going to go, but you do know you know, that it's not going to hurt. That there's some probability that it will come back and benefit me in some way, whether it's progressing humanity forward in a, you know, what you were talking about. But, you know, it, it's, it, seems, it seems completely logical to help other people because, yeah, it does, it, it helps with um, just, you know, moving us forward, whether that's in a technological or scientific standpoint or just from a, ethical or evolutionary standpoint yeah well and even you know people tend to be kind of down on the satanists but even the satanic um ten commandments reference do unto others as you would have them do unto you yeah and most anyone would be like uh yeah you should donate blood because i'm dying (laughs) you know so Mm -hmm. if you want good things to happen to you you have to be willing to do them for others Whatever you know, whatever belief system you hold, and we are all a little bit different here, in you know our actual religious beliefs. But I think that any one religion that I ever studied has agreed on this: that you know it's our you know humanly obligation to help those that need our help in whatever right. ways we are capable you know different different beliefs specify on different levels of to what degree you help those other people but they seem to all agree on you know help those around you it's the right thing it's the good thing for me it's the logical thing you know it's very rational so um do we have any other thoughts uh, we're we're pretty good on time here so um, Let's think. Um, well, even just thinking in terms of like the energy that you're sending out, 
you know, if you think, if you feel that way about the universe and energy and vibes and all that kind of stuff, if that's kind of more your jam than the religious thing, you know, if you think about sending out negative vibes or even just selfish vibes about me, 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 you're not going to get good things back in return. Well, even selfish people like me can think long term. We're all selfish. <laughs> we are. Shut we up. are all fundamentally selfish. Um, yeah. But you can think, if you just take a few seconds, you can think long term. And sure, like I said, sure, you don't know the benefits that could come back to you from your good act. Right. Um, well, and it's like anything else, you know, small things, small changes make a big difference. So... No, you don't have to sell your house and move to a yurt in the Himalayas and home. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you don't have to do huge, huge changes, but even just a small change can help. You know, save up your spare change and donate it to the Salvation Army or the the soup kitchen near you or any number of local charities. The animal shelter, if animals are more your jam, you know. So, Lewis, you had uh, mentioned going down the utilitarian rabbit hole. I, I did. Oh, I'm wondering man. if we, we want to actually take that <laughs> that <laughs> leap so. because it could, it could uh, take us down an interesting path. But I think now is a good time for us all to get another round real quick. Um, I'm, I'm plumb out of my drink here. So um, we are going to take a short break and we will be right back. All right, we are back. I've got a nice refill. Uh, Lewis looks like you do too. Mm-hmm. Soren's got something fruity over there. <laughs> um, so trying to get us a little bit back on track because we rabbit hole a bit, which is fine. Um, that's what great discussions do. Um, we tr- are tr- trying to define what is right, and um, we've kind of agreed on it's a human right, but what is a human right? So I'm going to leave it to our pub librarian over there to get this ball rolling. So the UN Declaration of Human Rights in Article 3 states that everyone has the right to life, liberty, and the security of person. Okay, that's uh, a little bit different than something we hold it here in America. sounds familiar, but... oddly, but that last bit. Uh, that last security bit. Of per- Can you say it one more time? Everyone has the right to life, liberty, and the security of person. Liberty. Okay. The security of person. Okay, so that is that could be an episode in and of itself, just discussing what the heck that means and all that. But um, I'm going to pitch it to either of you two if you have any inkling on what that could possibly mean or imply. Uh, I'm kind of short out right now. <laughs> security of person. I don't feel like it's as basic as safety, because... It does resonate somewhat with safety, though. It does, to an extent, and I think that's probably part of part of what they're trying to reference here, because they go into detail in several other articles about no one shall be subjected to torture or cruel, inhumane, or degrading treatment or punishment. It's in Article 5. Okay. Isn't there something about people are, you know people before the law or something like that later yeah on article six says that everyone has the right to recognition everywhere as a person before the law so so is that security of person relating to your stance as a human being regardless of your nationality your ethnicity well and they they did but, establish yeah that the human rights are res- resistant to any kind of categorization or right. demographics or anything like that sure, sure, sure. so it's above that but I, w- I would think it would be bigger than just safety. Because right. for such a big statement like that, it's got to be talk- talking about... Well, and the right to life. It says you have the right to life right in there. So mm-hmm. I think that's separate from the, the security of person. So safety, but that's bigger than just bombs and things like that. I think that means safety from debilitating illness. I mean, think about cholera outbreaks and things right. like that. Or, yeah, any sort of outbreak. I think, yeah... I would Family. agree. I would agree that we as humans are all entitled to that well, as we, you know, yeah. the basic right of being able to feel secure in our own, well, in our own food bodies. security, food but, safety, all of those things are really, really big parts right. of that. And I think Absolutely. if there was any kind of a disaster like a famine or a cholera outbreak or something like that, we would fully expect our governments to step in mm-hmm. and 
helped provide it. international <laughs> aid as well. Like, if you yeah. think about all the tsunamis that happened, all the hurricanes. Yeah, we fully things. expect... Earthquakes. Earthquakes. And so, um, how is that... And the things that, that are provided, in, interestingly enough, in those instances are water, food, and medical assistance, mm-hmm. as well as shelter, mm-hmm. among other things. Yeah, so um, I guess that begs the question for me, why are those situations, why are we obligated to help in those situations and provide people with medical care in those situations, but not day-to-day? Right. Our own fellow citizens, for instance, of you know, somebody with a, having a heart attack, bleeding out, broke bone, that's you know something that, yeah, why... Why are international? Why are we as citizens of a global society entitled to this you know, certain level of medical well, and why assistance? Why are we more interested in it? Yeah. Why are we more interested in those emergent situations than in helping people with something like chronic kidney failure? I think because those emergency situations are exceptions to the rule, and I think the rule is based upon. <laughs> utilitarianism oh joy linked I think in our context here in America directly to capitalism and there are instances in the uh, calculus behind capitalism that says you know everyone should act in their own self interest and the majority of people will be assisted through those actions uh, and people trying to find the best profitable way to make money will provide more services that includes health care and then we realize um, there are people going to be falling through the cracks, and that's the exception I think that we've made with emergency care. I think it's easier for some people to justify it versus the person that they don't know who's suffering, you know, stumbling into an ER, for instance. Mm-hmm. Well, and it seems to me that we've made, in kind of a, a weird sense, we've made our our bank accounts and our credit cards and all of that into their own entity in its own right that's worthy of its own protection and stuff like that in these situations so we almost protect that before we'll protect another human being which i think is really sad right. yeah we are more interested in protecting our possessions or our own comfort or stability or our resources you know our, our physical resources and yeah then um being willing to sacrifice a little bit to provide toward the care of another person um, but man, I'm just sitting here thinking about that security of, of body or whatever that was. Security of person? A person. Which, which actually, now that you mention it, it's not only just your body. It has more abstract characteristics as well. Perhaps. Shelter your, and your livelihood and your uh, ability Emotional to, protections yeah. from emotional your, abuse. Or your mental stability. and Persecution. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you could get into the how certain cultures violate that security of person thing but I think well anytime you create a refugee you've completely violated that yes I think anytime you've got refugees that you're not taking care of you've absolutely violated the right to their security of person because they have no security in any sense there's no food security there's no security of your family you have no job you have nothing but then we get to the question of do circumstances like that when does it become uh I would don't want to say immoral or unethical, but that's what's coming to mind when caring for somebody or a group of somebodies becomes an undue burden on you personally or your, right. your or your government entity or your community. For instance, you know this isn't our topic at hand, but the the you know, recent refugee crises it's starting to take effect on certain countries like Italy that it's becoming an undue burden. Um, other right. countries like in Scandinavia are having other problems too. So, when does that security of person super does that supersede the rights of other people to their security of person? Like, where does that line? You know, where do we draw that line? And relating it back to the healthcare system, yeah. or you know, is healthcare a human right? For instance, we we get into a lot of. You know, libertarianism from a political standpoint you get into utilitarianism and whether that's you know it's for the whether the collective good or the least you know least pain or whatever is more important than your resources your you know your security of person so I think right. we could again have an entire entire night discussing 
this security of person clause. Absolutely. Well, if you want to look at a, a Christian perspective again, just for a moment, I mean, Jesus tells us, turn the other cheek. Like, there's nothing that someone else can do to you that it now justifies you not doing the right thing by them. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Yeah. So... I mean, if we're gonna if we're gonna think about that, you there's there's no instance where you should stop helping others. However, logically, we know you know there's a certain point where you don't want to be endangering your own children or something like that. Um, I mean, yeah, from a non-religious standpoint, you can get into sure. I mean. It's been a while since I read him, but, you know, John Locke had some things to say about individual rights, you know, that's one of the founding principles of this this country, with some of Locke's thoughts, among, of course, many others. But I think, yeah, there the, when you consider it logically, there has to be a line somewhere where, you know, person A's security of person does not supersede person B security of person and I feel like people make that argument in relation to this healthcare topic whether it's a right or not um, so it's, it's it's a convoluted mess but uh, Absolutely. Lewis wanted to delve down the rabbit hole that is utilitarianism I know. so I think we so should tricky. indulge well but does it necessarily have to be easy either you know I don't think that you know I mean the right thing is never the easy thing. I mean, that's kind of a pithy <laughs> version of of that. But I think I think it kind of holds true. You don't. The thing that we should be doing is not often the easy thing to do, and so. You know, I think in some instances, like with the refugee crisis, like yes, the governments need to implement better safety and security and things like that. But does that mean we shouldn't be letting in any refugees? I don't think so. Because there's still a multitude of people that need help that vastly outweighs the number of people that are doing the wrong thing. So, even looking at it that way, so I think, you know, we need to be willing to inconvenience ourselves a little bit to help others. Absolutely. But we need to know where... Where to draw the line. Yeah. And Which, even, I mean, yeah. you were talking, you know, that moral gray area between, you know, what's logical and what's illogical, what's for the benefit of you and your tribe your community and what's not and that's where people are going to have differing opinions um just simply because you know someone may not consider that to be the right thing to do because you know where's the basis for what is right and what is wrong um because you know every culture has a different set of morals sure um whether you believe in objective morality or not i don't think that you know coming from say a Christian standpoint here that just because that's what the Bible says doesn't mean it should be universally applied to everyone um, in that it's right for me to help somebody out regardless of what it does to me um, instead of coming from from a perspective of perspective of you know, where's the, what's the logical perspective here? Yes, it's makes sense to help fellow man because it's like we discussed before our break that it can't, you know, you never know how it's going to come back to you, but is that necessarily the right thing? And I think that that's where we can delve into several rabbit holes of theology and utilitarianism philosophy and ethics, just plain old ethics and even logic itself so again we don't have time for that but absolutely um, well to bring another movie into this that um it's a true story it's called Molly it's coming out I think in the fall but it was about a guy in Africa who was abandoned when he was six years old something like that he was left on his own he was wandering the streets he became a street person he was begging and then one day he decided he was going to do something better. He made a ton of money and um, ended up being, you know, really wealthy. His family had TVs. They had everything. They were totally financially stable. They had, you know, a stone house in this 
African country, and they were doing really, really well. And then he walked on the street one day, and he saw street boys, just like what he was. Mm -hmm. And he went home, and he told his wife, and he, he had felt something from God, or, you know, if you believe that way. If you don't, you know, he felt something pulling on his emotional cortex, whatever you want to call it. But he ended up selling... Not really selling everything, but he brought thousands of children into his home. Thousands over the years. He brought children in. They they lived in his home. He ended up building more buildings for them. They ended up moving and doing all these things. And his children were pissed. Like, they were not okay. They were so mad because, you know, all of a sudden there's kids wearing their clothes and in their stuff. And they didn't like it at all. And he was like, well, this is what we're doing. You know, so... Sometimes something might not seem like the right thing even to your immediate family. It might be hard for them too, but he he saved thousands of children. And now his kids have grown up and they're, you know, an important part of the organization. They're they love what he's done and all of that stuff, but you know, to what extent do we have to just do what we know is right too regardless of the cost? I feel like that could also lead us into a rabbit hole of you know, capitalism because, you know, private property and, you know, the kids getting upset that, you know, rando kids were wearing their stuff, mm-hmm. using their stuff. And, you know, it's easy to get into a capitalist mindset of private property. You own what you have and you know, nobody else has an, you know, unburdened right to that thing. But then I don't think that... Uh, religions ever closely, you know, identified with capitalism or capitalistic ideals, but at least you know, in its <clears throat> ideal form, you know, I don't think, I don't think Jesus would have been a a bank, a bank owner or an investment banker or anything like that by no. any stretch of the imagination. No. He flipped over the the the, the tables in the temple. When they're changing money and currency. <laughs> I don't think you would have good things to say about Wall Street, but that's just me. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I think it's not easy, but I think, you know, our obligation to others supersedes mm-hmm. everything. So then, you know, bringing us back around to the beginning, you having said all that, you think that Healthcare is a human right, as maybe as the UN has defined, which is probably our, you know, our best, you know, best most recent understanding of what is a human right. Um, but what do you what do you think, Soren? Is that do you still feel the same way as you did when we started this off? I think I'm more convinced that healthcare is a necessary part of secure life. And so I think I think absolutely we have an obligation to make sure that everybody has healthcare now. Does that necessarily mean that everybody has you know a super posh doctor's office that they right. you know I don't think so. Um, but I think that we do have an obligation to make sure that people have have the health care that they need and I think that trying to limit that with government interference is not going to work I think even insurance companies being able to limit that is not an effective system I think it needs to be between an individual and their doctor and their doctor says this person needs insert whatever procedure medication treatment here and they need it and it goes off to the insurance company the government whoever's paying at that point and it's just a done deal because the doctor said they need it. So that's my thought. That's where I think insurance fails a lot of people is where it interferes between people and, and their doctors by saying, nah, doctor's wrong. You don't need that. Right. Do you still hold the same stipulation that there's that line between actual health care and something elective? I think it would need to be defined by the doctor. If, if a patient mm. goes to their doctor and their doctor says... You need whatever it is, gender reassignment surgery, shoulder replacement, 
any of those things. I think if the doctor feels that it's medically necessary to improve your quality of life, whatever their reasoning is, then absolutely I think that falls under the umbrella of healthcare. If there is no medical intervention in there that's saying you need this, I mean, like, yeah, I could say all day long, I need bigger boobs. But the doctor, like, if I don't have a doctor that's coming and saying, oh, yeah, she needs those, like, that's not healthcare at that point to me. So I feel like if we if we can kind of leave the, the buffer zone def- defining to medical professionals, that'll be a much better system than letting it be up to the government or insurance providers or anyone else. I think it needs to be between an individual and their doctor. All right, Lewis, what about you? Do you still hold the same opinion as you stated at the top of the show? Have you changed? Or do you think you are more able to you know, define your original point from what we've discussed today. I think we need more rabbit holes in order to have a firm, uh, a firm shift, in my opinion, uh, necessarily. I do think that um, the way that we're defining human rights, it does make sense that healthcare is a human right. I do want to stipulate again, there is probably a lot of gray area there, especially in regards to elective surgeries or elective procedures or things that would, uh, I don't know, increase quality of life. And that needs to go through some ethical framework, some form of calculus in order to arrive at whether or not it, I don't know, I'm thinking utilitarianism again uh, about if the procedure, elective or otherwise, does more good than harm. Uh, if, if the cost is uh, is uh, merited, therefore, then yes, I think even those situations would be covered ethically as a human right. I mean, from my studies of um, utilitarianism, utilitarianism, it wasn't just what does the most good, it was what does the most good for the most people. Absolutely. And I don't think that elective procedures that you know may improve quality of life like for instance i would love to have some of my sports injuries repaired but they don't they're not medically dangerous right now therefore it would just be a quality of life improvement i don't think that a quality of life improvement whether we're talking about you know transgender surgeries or you know other cosmetic surgeries for you know, insecurities or things like that, I don't think that those cause the greatest good for the greatest amount of people versus somebody that is dying or gravely injured or needs a medication to, you know, um, improve their productivity or something like that. You know, speaking from personal experience, depression, for instance, is very, very crippling and can affect your output and things like that. So... I don't like thinking from a utilitarian standpoint. I've never enjoyed doing that, but just for just for the sake of giggles, <laughs> um, I don't from from you know the perspectives that I've studied in the past that I don't think that um, wherever we draw that line between what we call healthcare and what we call elective, I don't think the elective side is a right. Um, simply because it does not cause the greatest good for the greatest amount of people since the you know larger populace would be paying tax dollars toward it um, but you know as, as you said those before uh, my preferred outlook on ethics deontology does not fit well so it does not <laughs> so I, I have mine, to, mine doesn't either yeah so I mean utilitarianism is for sure the you know, one of the best ways to look at this, and from where I'm sitting, utilitarianism would say no. It does, since it, we, like I said, the ones that I've studied, you know, it's the, the that greatest good for the greatest amount of people, or what causes the least amount of harm to the least amount of people. You know, so. I, I have, th- sorry, just to go down another rabbit hole with that. I think there's a really big problem because there are medications and things like that that are 
elective, generally speaking, but that are necessary in certain cases. I can speak personally, having worked for a, a Christian organization that would not cover my oral contraceptives, even though it was necessary to treat endometriosis, mm-hmm. um, because it was an oral contraceptive. Now, my concern with letting it be elective things are not covered under whatever system we adopt that that could fluctuate with political leanings of whoever's in charge of making Mm -hmm. those decisions. So people like Nina might not be able to get that medication if we have a staunchly pro-life group in charge or something like that. Um, But then if we get a more liberal group inside, that might be considered, you know, a necessary thing for everyone just because of birth control. And so people, people who have those medical issues that are treated in kind of odd ways might get kind of slip through the cracks in some ways and so that can lead to debilitating harm like in my case I could have been either permanently infertile or forced to have a hysterectomy except that I was able to afford the medication you know and so somebody who isn't able to afford it and the medication I was prescribed was really expensive it was $150 for three months that's a lot of money to put you know out of pocket and so if you can't if you can't afford that then you're kind of SOL, but then, oh, insurance will pay for the hysterectomy, but now you're permanently right. in menopause, permanently disabled. Th- wouldn't that procedure be more expensive than the medication? Yes. So obviously there's a failure of... <laughs> of, of but it's unethical to provide contraceptives from the... From a vantage point. Because birth control. But yeah. um, I think... What was I going to say? How are we doing on time? Well, I think we can wrap things up whenever we want to uh we're sitting at about an hour right now um so well i try to remember what i was gonna say (laughs) sorry i had to kind of throw that out there um it was a good point very good point it was a good point um oh what i was gonna say was whatever system that we adopt whatever we as a society collectively agree on would need to be codified into law you know, on a bipart, no, not really, a multi-partisan level, so that we could avoid those political leanings of a, you know, whatever, whoever would be in charge, because yeah. it would be in the law that you can't, you know, what is, what is this, what is that, what is considered healthcare, what is considered... Here's my concern with that, though, is that laws are malleable, as we can see with the current debate over the Affordable Care Act and whether or not it's going to stay. Um... So there's that, which is concerning. There's the other issue that you would potentially have to address every single medical condition and every single possible treatment for it, which well, is they not have a 1200 feasible. Page but done. I mean, there's there's <laughs> conditions that affect 12 people worldwide. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. so, how do we address those legally? Like, oh, legally, insurance has to cover this, so we're going to address this, this, this. But oh, there's this new treatment for it. Do which, we change the law every time there's a new treatment? How do we address that? Which presents a you know, as much as I hate to admit it, a case for socialized, you know, truly socialized medicine, like we see in Sweden, um, for instance, where it's not left to a private entity; it's a public entity that makes those decisions of what are we going to cover. And in, as from people I've talked to in Sweden, most everything medically, as like we've been discussing, they've drawn a line. I don't know where it is, but they've drawn that line between healthcare and elective. For instance, I don't believe the government there pays for you know, gender reassignment surgery or any of the other things like that that don't that are not medically necessary. What about like so dental or vision or anything like that? Um see and that can be problematic because a lot of people don't think vision insurance is necessary, but you can get all kinds of eye issues like retinal detachments and things like that that you can't see without mm-hmm. an eye exam that can cause death. Or <laughs> that can cause you to get into an accident, which would also cause death. Or, yeah, from a dental standpoint, um, I recently visited the dentist for the first time in probably 12, 13 years, and I didn't realize that I had some of the um, dental problems that I did. I had no idea. I had no you know, loss of quality of life. My teeth didn't hurt, etc. But they got in and saw that there was some, some problems to deal with. So... Yeah, I mean, what do we? I think you're going back to your your um, more defined point of having a medical professional declare 
what is medically necessary. Right. Because it's on such a case-by-case basis. Like, if you think, oh, a tummy tuck, that's a purely elective procedure, right? Nobody needs those. But women who undergo pregnancies and sometimes their abdominal wall will tear, that's the only way to fix it. But it's an elective procedure. But quality of life is gone. I was going to say, is it medically necessary, though? I mean, yes, it's a quality of life issue, but... You could look at the cost of the alternatives, though, and what would be the cost of not treating it in that manner? And Which that's getting I way too cold. Yeah, but, uh, but I'm thinking. Yeah. Well, and see, that. that's why I think leaving it to a doctor. But then I guess you do kind of get into the potential issue of doctor shopping too. Like, oh, this doctor won't do yeah. what I want. I'm going to go to this Absolutely. other doctor. Right. But, Which becomes a problem. But then, would it be ethical for a law to state? you have to go to this doctor or... As no, I, because look at that. You just went through that problem where you <laughs> did not like your primary care doctor. Yep. And you switched physicians and you were well within your right to do that. And I think that's important. I think the takeaway from all of this conversation is that this is very complicated. And there's no... And there's not really a very clear answer to all this given the fact that we have very different... Opinions on a variety of topics. As with most moral, ethical, and general philosophical discussions, this is a very gray. It's bigger area. than it sounds. Like, oh yeah, healthcare for everyone. Let's just do that. So Sounds I mean, great. that's you know, that's very <laughs> foolish and naive to sit there doing that. But it's also the same to sit here and go, no, no one can have healthcare. Exactly. Everyone must pay for it out of pocket. Yeah, exactly. So. And, you know, in closing, I think that the original question is healthcare a, you know, we've now defined it or defined right as a human right. And like we've said, there's no yes or no. There's yes, but, or no, but. But there's no really good justifiable reason to deprive someone of it either. Right. Uh, Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. So. Again, that's that would be something very interesting to see, you know, maybe greater philosophical minds than me write up, you know, in an essay. You know, there's a lot of good philosophical essays out there. So, all right. Uh, I think that's a, a good first run. Um, Cheers, good, everyone. Good on time. Cheers. <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs>